Welcome to Stoveside Chat. The chef is ready for your kitchen tour. Please come this way. Thanks, uh, Chef Han, again for joining us. Yeah. Uh, we'll start uh, with you telling us about your background and yourself. You know, you have an unusual background, to say the least. So share with us. Uh... Yeah, so, you know, um, in summary, you know, um, in my previous life, more than 11, just about 14, 15 years back as well. Um, actually, 11 years back. So 11 years back, sorry. Uh, I was in the finance industry. Um, I've always, you know, um, loved to cook already as well. Cooking has always been a passion of mine since um, schooling days. Um, and I made the jump to the F&B industry, partly because for pure passion. Um, I really like to create. I was trying to find an outlet to express my creativity. I, cooking really... You know, it trans- cook the feel the joy of cooking, and when I cook, it really transported me to a different dimension of sorts as well, and that's what made me fall in love with cooking as well the other day. And um, I also grew up in a family that is almost always in hospitality. Mm. So my granddad used to own a couple of restaurants back in the heydays. Used to own one of Singapore's um, most um, premium steakhouses. Back in the 1960s to 1990s, it went on for almost 30 years. Mm. He also had um, a Sichuan restaurant and a more casual Western restaurant in Singapore in the early days. Um, that's my grandma. She's a fantastic home cook. She's a she cooks for the family every week, the extended family, right? Uncle, aunties, everyone, uh, cousins, you know, myself. Um, she's my hero. People ask me who's my hero chef, and I always say it's my grandma. You know, she's she's she she's creative. She doesn't create normal chicken rice, which is why that like the Angmo chicken rice was born. It was her she termed it Angmo chicken rice. I didn't want to change the name uh, because it was her is it, it, is her naming convention and, and she created it and she twist she gave it a western twist around it, um purely out of her own creativity. And that's one of them as well. And um my dad's been in the hotel industry, he's more uh, towards finance and corporate asset management in the hotel industry, but it's still hospitality. And my maternal grandmother um, in, was, I mean, my mom is Thai Chinese, right? So my maternal grandma also used to run like her own private villas in Phuket. Wow. That obviously comes with a um, small restaurant tied to it as well. And uh, when we visit Phuket, food obviously going to eat, street food, eating in the villas, you know. Obviously, became a norm as well, you know, over the years. I mean, she just passed on. She moved back to Bangkok and she passed on. Um, so, basically, my family has always been hospitality. So, I guess it was, a, in some way, it was a calling in some ways. Um, maybe genetic DNA. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. So, basically, that part, yeah. Did your family, like, want you to become a chef or did they care or? Of course, they weren't, they weren't comfortable at the start. Um, I mean, they did invest in my education in London, um, studied, you know, I came up with a degree in accounting and finance in London. Um, obviously, 
they wanted me to have a more stable life. My dad's, my dad's, my dad's in, I mean, he's, he's an employee himself, right? He doesn't, he saw how hard it is for my grandfather um, in terms of running a business and much less F&B one. And so obviously he didn't want the same level or rather that, that kind of difficulties as well that I'll face running a business. So obviously he wanted me to do the same thing as well, you know, I said, you know, just really have a comfortable, stable life. And um, have good education as well, whatever education brings. So he was a little bit hesitant at the start um, with me pursuing my dreams of cooking, my culinary dreams as well. Um, he, was, he was always asking why couldn't I just leave it as a hobby or a passion on the side and I just have a day job that pays. Uh, fair enough, to be honest. I mean, I'll say that to anybody as well. Um, I think it was not easy at the start, I mean, to convince them. And of course, I think they're worried that this, was, this may not be lasting. They know the risk involved. They know how high the failure rate in Singapore is for F&B industry. Like 9% of F&Bs in Singapore closed down in the first year of newly opened. Wow. That's, that's the current, that is the, the, the market standard <laughs> statistics at least. And um, out of the 10% left, 90% of that 10% closed down by the third year. So thank you. Looking at basically like 90% or 10%, let's see looking at, well, 1% succeeding <laughs> past the third year. So the odds are not exactly in my favor, right? So obviously my father was worried that you know, this would not turn out correctly. It might just be a phase for me as well, like an early midlife crisis for me. And then I'll move on to some other things next time as well as when my fancy. You know, and, and, and so he was worried. But now, uh, with the restaurant being stable, we've just crossed our seventh-year anniversary. So he he can relax a lot more. He's happy. <laughs> He's happy, man. <laughs> it's always good to know your uh, your sons and daughters succeeding in what they wanted to do, right? So yeah, I think not just succeeding. I think all he just wants from us is to be for us to be happy and for our lives to be stable and not having to go through unnecessary challenges. And difficulties as well because you know you know how Asian parents are right they are they <laughs> sure. they do work hard so they said the later generation get a better life so obviously in his eyes like why did I work so hard for you're going to do this <laughs> they are, they, and that's a bad question you know I will ask myself next time if I become a father mm-hmm. yeah so yeah I think there's um that's basically um and then we opened Labyrinth in 2014 and um yeah, Labyrinth will open as um, 2014. Basically, we open more of like a molecular, modernist, Singaporean-style cuisine. Actually, I never at the start, I never really called myself Singaporean. Just that my chili crab ice cream and the chendo xiaolong pao and some dishes were very Singaporean and then the media started picking on it and calling me modern Singaporean. Um, we picked up the Michelin star in 2017. 2018, I decided to do a massive shakeup of our cooking philosophy and culinary philosophy. Renovated the restaurant to be moved from 2014 from a small location to a bigger location in 2015. We did a big reno. We got 2017 got a mission star. 2018 we did a massive renovation. On top of that, we changed our entire cooking philosophy, which is now what we know what we are known for for the local produce movement and sustainability. 
And there was a big risk because the Michelin star definitely helped change our company financial fortunes. We were so close to going broke two to three times across the journey. Mm. Um, we had to borrow money um, from our, I know, from my, I borrow money from my family, myself. Had to put in more money. My partners had to put in more money as well. We almost went under a few times. The Michelin star, Michelin star really changed our fortunes. We really started making a profit after we got a Michelin star. So obviously, again, my parents and my partners were concerned that so soon after winning Michelin Star, I had to change my entire philosophy. Um, they said they're putting the star at risk. You got a star for doing something, and I'm going to change it, and you're going to put the star at risk because you don't know whether Michelin is going to like local produce. I'm going to appreciate the sustainability angle. So I think on that front, it was, um, again, very concerned. But you can see by now, I'm probably very stubborn. Um, I do. In some ways, you know, I just... The reason I changed, I told them that, that, that I don't cook for money. I don't cook for the profits the other day. If I, cook, if I wanted money in the first place, I'd say finance. It was good money. Um, better hours. Um, I really cook for the, I cook for the priority mainly of expressing myself, to tell a story and to represent. And, and, and cooking, however, at the point of time, 2018, I realized that, 2017 rather, I started realizing that cooking with modernness, techniques didn't really strike a chord with me anymore. It wasn't techniques that I invented. It was basically techniques that's really around in books online around the world and applying it to flavors that already existed in Singapore, the hawkers. So it wasn't really my own voice. I wasn't creating something. I was just marrying two things together. And I felt a little bit empty in terms of what I was cooking for. And, you know, who was I as a chef? I think every chef really strives to find their own voice, their own story to tell. And, and every chef will have to reach a maturity level where they're confident enough to tell their own story and what they believe in and their culinary philosophy. So, you know, meeting the farmers in Singapore, stumbling on local produce and the quality of local produce, I was very shocked as well, led me to discover a lot more of what Singapore had to offer and really changed the way I looked at food, how I cook, and, and, and I was really convicted to do this as well because it was something that I felt very, it was personal, and I really believed in it. And I thought, hey, I really want to do something. It's a bit of a calling, I guess. And um, so I did it. Thank God it worked out too. <laughs> and we became a star. Um, the following year, we a new culinary philosophy, and with the 50 bears recently as well, I guess, and the sustainable award as well, I guess it all worked out somehow or another, right? So um quite lucky there. But I think also partly because I really believed in it. I think in the other day, I think looking back, um, I will say we still, I wouldn't say I'm even halfway through my journey, but I think looking back, um, the reason why we are here where we are is because I've always truly, whatever I opening from opening the restaurant, changing my career and my life direction, to changing my cooking style to believing in local, to pushing ahead sustainability, I think the main part is really about conviction. I was not doing it for the reason of marketing myself or to sell more or sell more food, make more money. It was really the reason that I really wanted to do it and it was a conviction. And I guess it's the pure has perseverance, the time invested to the knowledge and the craft of cooking, running a business, all these just push us through, lah. Yeah, 
Yeah, it's a, it's a great point. Obviously, congratulations again for uh, being on the 40th uh, spot in the Asian Top 50 restaurant and winning the uh, Sustainable Award in, in Asia as well in 2021. So congrats again. Um, yep. <laughs> I guess for that, specifically, I guess more so the sustainability aside, aside as well. Obviously, Mission Style, you said, help you have your business to sustain itself. But as far as the Sustainable Award um, and then the, the, top, the top 40, how does that um, does that change any of your mindset? Is there anything that you you wanted to really you know concentrate on? Um, so I think there's two sides to it as well. As a chef, to be honest, about it, it's a secret desire to, of course, want to be recognized and win awards. But yeah, at the same time, how I operate and the mentor of my restaurant, you know, look, I don't live my life around wanting to win the Michelin star. You know, I, I, I want it, you know, as a chef, but I do not live my life around three Michelin stars target. I don't live my life around the world 50 best target or winning awards. I live my life around cooking good food, making people happy, keep my staff happy, and it's about self-fulfillment in their day, about improving myself and, you know, to keep coming on new dishes that are better, to look at old recipes and make it better again. Um, refine my philosophy and look at how I can make contribute greater to society in some sense. Um, the ex- it's really a more of a strive towards excellence than a strive towards awards. And if awards come along the way, I'm very happy. It's, it's a great motivation. It's a great inspiration. It inspires me to want to do better than the Sustainability Award. To be honest, we faced a lot of difficulties trying to be sustainable in Singapore. Um, we were ahead of our time as well before the government even gave a shit about sustainability in Singapore or being local in Singapore. Uh, though just like just about like three years ago, <laughs> but we were quite ahead of our time. Um, and um, people didn't want to pay good money or fine dining price for local produce. So, of course, the awards definitely motivate us as well. I mean, inspired us one bit better. We feel very encouraged that people are actually recognizing our hard work as well. And the awards, it comes business. You know, we want to come, we want to eat what we really want to offer. We're not coming here. The awards give us a little bit of the platform and license to roam. Like, people are coming to Labyrinth now because they want to eat our philosophy, our food, our creation, my creations want to experience you know what they see the news um what i'm you know what i'm talking about you know my life my stories and how my stories translate to my dishes they're giving me the license to cook what i want and they are and technically the boss give me a stage and an audience to play to it's like a musician right a musician i mean instead of doing, doing covers you want to play your own music but if you're not somewhere, if you're not given the 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 the, the credit, the, the due credit, you're not you're not given the accreditation by relevant media awards panels, authorities out there. The audience are not going to be paying top dollar to listen to your own brand of music. The audience will pay top dollar to listen to your brand of music if someone says someone who's respectable out there says that this is good. It's worth paying for. 
since somebody's the award, that's it for us. And I'm being grateful for the award because without the awards, I wouldn't have my stage. The awards is the platform, but I see the awards not as a, for ego booster. It, again, I say I do not live for the awards, but the awards are important for me because it provides a platform for me to spread the gospel on local produce and Singapore flavors. So it's able for me to drive through my cost of you know, supporting my farmers, hopefully we can get more business out of this as well, increase awareness among the public. So I mean, talk about sustainability, you have the educational aspect of sustainability, which is called human sustainability as well, um, to drive through the heritage as well. This was enough for sustainability, um, awareness as well. And the, the awards does this for me as well, you know, they, and I really can't complain. The media as well, not just awards, media as well. Um, so, I mean, for me as well, maybe the other day, um, I say I don't live my life around the awards, but I'm very grateful and very happy, of course, when it comes. Um, I would not, you know, say no to it, of course, <laughs> the other day. And um, it's good for business. Yeah. So, you know, you mentioned uh, the relationship with, you know, everyone, you know, not just the media, but the customers, the farmers. Obviously, when you made the switch over to more sustainability, local um, idea of your of your restaurant, it must be difficult to, like you said, you know, make people get used to the idea and having that system to support you. So, especially in the beginning, how did you work with the farmers then? Uh, is, is there any particular things that you, you ask them for or how does it work? I will make sure I visit the farms personally myself. I want to understand the farming methods. I think as a chef, it's important to know how things grow in order to see or have an open dialogue with them over why is that this, if we grow it differently, or why is it? So I learned a lot from the farmers about how things grow. And in Singapore, it's not easy because we don't, we don't see such things firsthand. Um, you just see the food in supermarkets, right, half the time. Um, so I make sure I visit every farm. I make sure that not just about the farming methods that convince me as well. I want to make sure that the farmers ain't bullshitting. There are farmers who bullshit. There are, not all farmers are honest farmers. It's just definitely that way as well. Um, I want to make sure that whatever they're telling me and whatever I'm reading up online and researching my own as well because there's certain produce being farmed and how it's being grown is authentic. <laughs> With integrity, the farmers who actually, they're actually traders who masquerade as farmers. Hmm. So they actually buy and they put it in their pond and they pretend to be farmers. Right. And they want to make sure that and sometimes we go down, you see all the fishes in these ponds, or you see them in the in the, in the individual house in the individual housing, or even in the floating fish farm in the Kedong of Singapore. It's hard to tell if we are not well versed in the farming, if they actually grew from scratch. Mm-hmm. Or they bought it in. So sometimes I actually caught there. I told him, it's a, what makes you different from a Chinese restaurant with a fish tank inside the fish swimming in there? It's about the same, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So I make sure I start, I go down to the farm, I read up on how the specific produce can be grown online as well. It's about knowledge. But it's just knowledge, it's about knowledge as well. It's about being able to um, understand, firstly, techniques, farming techniques as well, and you know the natural farming techniques and what makes things tasty. Um, why does natural soil with natural nutrients taste better than uh, hydroponics, for example, um, or aquaponics as well? That's one. And I think most importantly is also understanding that the farmer is there. Um, farmer is doing it in Singapore with the same reason I'm doing, I entered the FB industry, passion. I 
no matter sometimes how difficult customers can be, I will never sabotage my food at all. But I always tell my guys, no matter, maybe some people out there don't deserve our respect. They mean they treat like dogs. They think that we are here to serve them. But what deserves respect is my produce and my dish. And same thing, the farmers need to be able to respect their own produce that they're growing and be proud of it. The same way we chefs are proud to cook our dishes for our customers. If we sometimes we come across farmers who are there purely for commercial purposes, and after a while we're working with them as well, we realize that they put more priority towards making money, um, going after the hotel contracts we have, uh, which obviously guarantees them. I'm not saying that's the wrong thing. Of course, everyone needs to know more money in Singapore, it's not cheap to run a farm in Singapore or business in Singapore in general. But I think more so it's a priority. I mean, you've got to be fair to all your customers. I'm not asking for priority itself. I'm just saying they've got to be fair. What I'm looking out for is about the farmers going to be proud of what they're growing and they've got to be, I've got to feel the energy from them. You know, I've got to feel that they, they want to work. You know, we've got to be on the same page when it comes to alignment of priorities, passion, and you must be able to talk because the problem about relying on farm table produce is that it's not stable. So every day, we don't know where it's going to come in or not. Even when it comes in, how much quantity is going to come in by. We've got to adjust our meat on plus. We've got to adjust our ordering. We've got to adapt our dishes sometimes as well, last minute, in order to accommodate what comes in for the farm. And that's quite a hassle. So we need to have a good issue with the farmers in order to have open discussion with them in order for them to talk to us and tell us what's happening or you know what's going to happen. Um, the difficult part is about scaling some of the produce. Um, obviously, getting an audience with them. Some farmers are notoriously very difficult to work with because they are hermits. They live up in the north of Singapore. It's not that far thinking about it, but actually really, you don't really go to the north as well, to be honest as well. And um, they, it's hard to talk to them. And how about... And for us, the difficult part is delivery because we're not a big restaurant. Mm-hmm. We want the produce to be as fresh as possible. We need it. So we can't do bulk orders once a week. We have to do smaller orders almost every day or every other day across the week. And from the farmer's perspective, with limited resources and cost, sometimes it doesn't make sense to, 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 to cut off to us like two kilos or something all the way from north town to where we are, which is easily around half an hour plus car ride. So I think the start difficult part was about the minimum order quantity as well. So I mean, after the farmers started, you know, those that really got along with me as well, um, those that were on the same pages, they were happy to wait because, you know, they, they look at each other. They were like, we don't look at each other with dollar signs. Mm-hmm. We look at each other as friends, as partners, along the whole chain, the whole ecosystem. And maybe look at other customers as dollar signs, but with me, my main partners, the one I'm closest to as well, we don't see each other as, as, as money. Like either some last minute, I got VIP, wanted some local, wanted some local lobsters to try. Um, Sunday, um, it was early afternoon. Sunday, by the way, no one, no one should be working on Sunday. Um, I called the fish farm owner and um, we had 5 p.m. Lobsters were in my kitchen live. Wow. We went out to his farm, five-minute boat ride on a Sunday, cut three lobsters back for me. And the amazing thing is, he didn't even charge me for anything. Free. He said, bro, this is for you. Free, man. Right. And I know I've got to pay for it. I said, I want to, I want to pay. I said, please, I want to pay. Don't please 
my VIP is paying for it as well. I want to pay for it. He said, nah, it's all right. They really supported me enough. And yeah, this is the thing as well. I mean, I mean, this is what we do for each other. And, and, and because of that, whenever I work with them, I don't ask about the price. I just say, I want it. It's not that cheap. Are you okay with it? I say, you know, I don't care. I don't Tell me what it is and I'll price it accordingly on my own menu. So I don't care about the price um, with them. I don't bargain. I don't push down. Um, it depends on the profile as well. Because if it's a larger conglomerate, I'm dealing with the salesperson of the larger farm that's sponsored or granted by the government. You know, I know that they're more commercial. So obviously, maybe I'll try to negotiate a bit more on the price. But if it's like independent farm owners who are doing it really out of passion, around with the owners around my age, then obviously you could all have a better life doing something else. Obviously, for them as well, for me, this is... This is um this is a friendship. This is not um this is a partner. They're partners, you know. And I always make myself for them that oh, these are my farms that I work with. No, not my farms. I always remember them. You know, you know, it's just so close. <laughs> they, 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 you know, they're they my farmers. Like, oh, you own the farm? No, no. These, oh, these are, are, are my farmers. I mean, like, they are like my personal farmers because they become it's it's, it's very personal already as well with them. Yeah. So I think I mean yeah. So so yeah. So that's a difficulty, but I think we have gone through. So over the years, we have managed to. Interesting enough, we actually opened up with working with a lot of farms. We now know we have contacts with almost like 50% over the farms in Singapore, straight up with the button as well, we call them. But we only work with seven to eight. It shrunk over the years, um, probably because, you know, we built a relationship and we realized who we really want to work with more. Because for me, I think it's about, firstly, it's not just about the produce, it's about the relationship with the farmers first. The relationship is important. And sometimes, you know, things we do fall out. Um, different direction, changing directions as well. Um, well and you know, no matter what happens, Singapore is quite competitive when it comes to business and costings as well. And uh, sometimes people just have different directions of where they want to go versus where I want to go as well. But what's left behind are the farmers that are really, really, that bring me close to, rather. And they will stick their neck out for me whenever I need them. And, you know, when we did the 50 best um, um, award ceremony that day itself, um, we did a technical events are banned in Singapore. So when I'm doing an event, we do an event. I decided not to, to just invite my own guests for dinner and not charge them. And two of those tables, half of the, the, the customers that invited that day for dinner were my farming partners and their staff. Oh, wow. Because I have this sustainability award was for you guys. I say I can't, I would not have won it if you guys did not support me this much. I cannot do it alone. I need the farmers to be able to support me fully on it. So yeah, so I think that part I'm appreciative for the farmers as well. And that part, you know, yeah, they is um they part of a bigger ecosystem. Yeah, that's uh like you said, the relationship and building that is very important. And you also touched on a point where Singapore has a great geographic location, right? Not just internally, but also, you know, a lot of history goes on. You know, yourself, like you said, your, your grandmother's uh, Thai, Chinese, a lot of like, yep. a lot of uh, Eastern uh, Asian influence, Chinese influence. So how do you think all these things influence and shape Singaporean food? I mean, to say that hundreds of years ago, um, Singapore food, okay, so the question is, is what's indigenous or aboriginal equivalent of Singapore food, we actually have no idea. Um, I guess the Malay food maybe as well. Um, but again, what we're seeing right now could, is, could be completely 
actually, I think it is completely different from what it was originally here two, three hundred years ago. I think what's a great part about food as well being the geographical location is that we have had migrants in the earlier days as well, the colonization days as well, um, coming down all the way from China, going through Thai, I mean, going through Malaysia, Indonesia, Singapore as well setting up their roots here. Different dialect groups come to Singapore across different timing as well. I'm Hainanese. So in some ways, so just, just in context, Hainanese are always in F&B. And this is some this example of, of how is they shape Singapore food because why are they always in F&B? Because when the Hainanese came to Singapore, we, the dialect group this from China, from the Hainan Islands, we were one of the last dialects or groups arrived in Singapore. The Teochews, the Hokkien, the Hakkas were here first. The only jobs available because all the, the good were taken by blessed ones was a cook in the British camps, the, the, the army camps, and on the, the battleships. So, so a lot of Hainanese started cooking in Singapore. And this gave birth to what we know today as the British Hainan cuisine. So they fuse what they learn or what they know in in China, in Hainan Island, with what they've learned from the British cooking Western food. And that gave rise, gave, gave rise to the creation of uh, the first, I would call it the first form of fusion in Singapore, which is Hainanese cuisine in Singapore, which still, you walk to a Hainanese restaurant or what they call Hainanese steakhouse, you have Hor Fan beside a sizzling plate steak with Bosch soup. Oh wow. Shaslik. <laughs> I don't know sure when the Russian fiber came in as well. Um pork chop, sweet and sour pork chop. And toast with peach melba. It's an eclectic mix of anything. And it's and all these so-called, I mean this so-called Bosch soup, chaslik, escargot, um, steak, pork chops in the other day, uh, chicken pie. They, not, they look and taste very different from, well, the authentic form of what it should be because the Hainanese have already adapted it. Right. It's like the steak, you know, the, the French style, the red wine sauce on the steak normally is, um, they, they, they use the stock, right? The juice of the, and then it's the G and the, uh, the, this is the G, rather the stock as well. They, with the red wine, a bit of mirepoix, aromatics to it as well. And um, finish off the red wine, a bit of maybe some pepper, and um, that's about it straight up. The Hainanese one adds on sesame oil. I mean, trust me, the French will not put on sesame oil in their steak at all. Steak sauce. We have Worcestershire, another British, very British thing, HP sauce. Right. They put oxtail in there for the collagen, to add collagen and tendons to the steak as well. They put um, standard red wine and the stock in as well and black pepper. So it started adapting a lot already as well, its own flavor. So this has become again, very Singaporean. The Hainanese chicken tastes nothing like Hainanese chicken rice in Hainan Island. It's different. Actually, what's more similar to the Hainanese chicken rice in Hainan Island is the Thailand version of it. The Singapore one with the rice that's very fragrant and aromatic with the chicken rice top with ginger and pandan. It's adaptation. Again, so again, back to the question again as well. A lot of migrants came to Singapore and so they adapted. You can ask questions like, why is Hokkien mee in Singapore different from Malaysia? Malaysia is a black color one, and Singapore is a white color one. 
The truth is, there is no relation at all between both Hokkien Mee. There's the same name. Oh. There's no correlation. Singapore Hokkien Mee was born by a Hokkien, a couple, I, I, what I read out as well, a couple of Hokkien brothers who decided to just randomly cook some noodles in porn stock on the street. And then they call it Hokkien Mee. There's no, there's, this dish was created in Singapore. There's no tie into any China or Malaysia version, nothing. It was just purely Singapore. They happen to share the same name. And an interesting part is you go to a Teochew restaurant in Singapore and you start realizing they also serve Hokkien Mee. So, what the Teochew restaurant serving Hokkien Mee? What's an authentic Teochew restaurant serving Hokkien Mee as well? Don't they serve like Orni, the Yam Pate, everything? And then the thing is because the origins, the original founders of the Hokkien Mee taught their Teochew friends how to cook it. And Teochew took right. it and they ran with it. <laughs> so that's how it became more Teochew dish too, despite the naming terminology. And a lot of other dishes from Malaysia, Indonesia came to Singapore. They started changing because of lack of ingredients or not say that ingredients. They couldn't find the original ingredients. Yeah. They couldn't find the same flour. Um, they couldn't find, you know, or maybe the palettes, the local palettes different. They started adapting a lot more. And that gave rise to, I think, um, a lot of the, um, what we call Singapore cuisine. So it's, yes, it's very vibrant. And um, they have shaped Singapore food because of our geographical location, the influx and influence. So I would say that our dishes are actually similar to our neighbours. It's just been influenced by our neighbours. And, um, and that's, that's beautiful part, the diversity of the Malay, Chinese, Indian, and um, uh, Western cuisine, and Eurasian cuisine in Singapore. I mean, gave, gave birth to a lot of all these as well. So, I mean, that's a great, that's, that's a great part. Yeah, that sounds like uh, almost like the original fusion of all these different cultures, right? Yeah, correct. Yeah. Yeah. Now, uh, you mentioned in some of the other interviews you've done that you want to spread Singaporean cuisine overseas. So what are you, well, how do you actually achieve that? Like, is it by traveling? Is it by, you know, cooking with other chefs? And how do you do that? I guess so. Cooking other chefs. Other chefs. Um, cooking other chefs overseas. Traveling, cooking Singapore food overseas, helping, I mean, supporting government costs. The government needs me to go somewhere, I have to go. <laughs> um, not about money, it's really, well, I mean, you can't buy the government. <laughs> not Singapore, what at least. But I mean, but in all, but in all seriousness, the Singapore government gave me a great platform in honesty as well to, to showcase my philosophy as well. Um, so definitely that's what I want to do in the other day. I mean, it's really about um, going overseas. And then so often, not, you actually find similarities more so called Asia, of course. But you find similarities in, 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 in our cuisine that you go there and you cook something, the chef there will be like, oh, this is similar with something something like that. Mm. Let me take you there. And we come to Singapore, I think it's a hey, I mean, think about it, curry puff from Singapore, then you keep the eye empanadas. Same, same. Actually, they are the same. It was from Portugal. I mean, Portugal was in the colonial days as well. So, I mean, there was... Um, some of the herbs that we're seeing in Singapore, what we call as native towards Singapore and Malaysia, they come from Spain and Portugal back in the heydays, like hundreds of years ago. Um, so definitely, I think it's really about going overseas and showing them what Singapore, of course, again, like all forms of cuisine, you know, Japanese, Thai, Malaysian, Singaporean, you know, British cuisine is diverse. It's hard to just bracket it up and say this is Singapore food. I guess the easiest way to go out there is unfortunately, unfortunately as well, 
is that there has to be a few stereotypical dishes that represent Singapore. The way you may think of Japanese, you think of sushi, sashimi, anything of like uh, ramen. Thai food, you think of tom yam, pad thai, um, and um, papaya salad, tom tam. And um, Singapore, you think of chili crab, chicken rice, Hokkien mee, bachor mee. That's about it. So it goes. Um, so I think it's okay. I mean, for me, I'm fine with that. It's, you know, every cuisine, American, you think of hamburgers, pizzas, strangely enough, pizzas. I don't know why it should be Italian, but yeah. <laughs> so uh, it is something stereotypical, but we have to live with it. And, um, you know, as long as people get to know that Singapore food is different from Malaysian food, different from Indonesian food, I think, I think, I think, I think it's okay. Yeah, that's interesting. That's how I guess people learn about uh, other people's food, and they sort of, you know, if they like it, they'll they'll do it. If they they don't like it, maybe some component component of it they want to improve, they'll change it, kind of thing, right? Yeah, crazy. It's, it's an introduction. Like, I like Thai, I like Tom Yum. I want to go Thailand. When I'm in Thailand, I see other things. I want to try even more. See, I'm really there. So I think it's more. Of a, it's for me. It's going around the world. It's more like give me an introduction to Singaporean flavors, and then if they like it, they come to Singapore. They, they they eat more. They find out more. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So the uh, the lab in in the in the name of the restaurant Labyrinth means actually stands for laboratory. So yeah, uh, right. what do the uh, lab looks like? What are you guys working on? I mean, it's, it's not really a lab. I mean, it's, it's more like a colloquial term as well. It's more to stress the importance that in Labyrinth we're not cooking traditional food. Um, creativity and innovation. In, uh, forms part of our core philosophy of creating dishes over here. Um, not because for the sake of being creative, for the sake of being different, but because that's, that's who I am. You know, it's about expressing myself on the plate. And that's why the lab, I mean, yeah, the lab is my kitchen. It's the same kitchen that comes out for service. There's no funky laboratory. There's no rotovap as well. I don't even own a Thermomix even as well. Um, there's a wok. There's a um, French top. It's an induction, there's vacuum chamber, we have one liquid nitrogen tank. And everything the kitchen. Um, the lab really force a philosophy. Creativity doesn't exist in um, in terms of uh, as a hardware. It exists in the head. Okay. You know, it's about how do you express yourself as a chef? You know, some chefs want to just cook classical express themselves that way as well. For me, it's different. I want to express my story. I want to tell my story. So lab has always been, lab in it really more so in the head where, you know, whatever we serve in lab really has to be an extension of who I am as a person. And because of that, it's different. It's not traditional. I am not the most normal of people. I like to know things about myself is. Uh, I think our chefs like to blow themselves a little bit crazy up there as well. Um, that's, you know, we wouldn't be doing this in the first place, right? Um, and so every day we are doing R&D projects in the kitchen. The human aspect is my, the human, the people in my kitchen, my staff, they are the driving force behind the R&D, not the equipments. And it's such that they are labyrinth, in a sense. They are the lab in labyrinth. And uh, for us, we do a lot of testing on menus, new dishes, new ideas, test on new produce, how do we cook this produce better. Um, we work on recipes from the past. You know, I do a lot of research myself, but I do have my senior team who on top of prepping for service and doing their lunch service, they also 
do R and D in the middle of the day. Wow. So I mean, so so yeah. I mean, the other day as well. They always we always have R and D stuff going on. Um, and that's important because the moment we stop doing R and D is the moment that I feel that labyrinth no longer exists in me because that means I'm not in the restaurant anymore. And there's no point running a restaurant if we're not here. Yeah, they. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds like a mindset uh, of way of thinking. Um, that's the main main idea, right? Yeah, correct. Yeah, precisely. Yeah. Um, so going off a little bit off of uh, food, I guess uh, you were the guest chef at the Lamborghini Lounge during the 2019 Singapore F1 race. I was actually there yeah. right before that. So how was okay. the experience? Yeah. yeah, how was the experience? And then are you a big car fan as well? Okay. Um, am I a big car fan? I'm a very superficial car fan. I like to see nice cars. Um, I don't really care about the specs of a car to be, you know, being in Singapore. How fast can we really drive? <laughs> you go from A to B. It's only half an hour from one end to the other. End. How, much can you, how fast can you really go without being caught by the police? I mean, the other day, right? But I do like nice cars, you know. I see cars as well out there. My dad is a huge car nut. My dad loves cars. I think sometimes he wished I loved cars as much as he does. Um, I always take his cars out for a spin. I mean, to 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 use as well. Um, obviously, he doesn't like that because he has to wash his car. He does wash his car. It's his passion. Cars are my dad's passion, not my passion in particular. Um, but I do appreciate his cars. Um, I like to think that you know a car looks. I like, you know like, like one of my friends and I, my and I, you know, we're looking at them. Um, he was going by a Porsche. Uh, a Porsche one day as well, and then you just like, she said, "See, there with me." I was like, "Eh," and like, "You want the Carrera or are you going for the Boxster?" He said, "You want to go for the Boxster." I'm like, "But the Boxster is not as um powerful as Carrera." He's like, "I don't care. It looks nicer." Change <laughs> 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 I mean, the whole <laughs> the chassis, everything does as well. I'm like, "Yeah, I think for me as well." I know I like how things, how how cars look. Um, it was a bit experience being Lamborghini as well. Um, because you now they um. <laughs> You can see Lamborghini up front. Um, you come too close to it as well. Um, obviously, you look at the car, you're like, yep, I do want... It would be nice. I'm going to say I do want it. It would be nice to get enough money to throw around and just buy one just for fun one day. I always joke my guys. I say, that if I one day have enough money just to throw on the Lamborghini, I'm going to paint it pink with a Hello Kitty stickers on top of it. <laughs> and my guys said, why? I'm like... Just because I can, if I could one day, <laughs> I mean, that's, that's, that's obviously the dream. <laughs> they just, I mean, especially cars in Singapore are so expensive. Mm-hmm. I mean, the COE and everything as well. I mean, how much Lamborghini is here in uh, where, where, in um, in in Canada, right? Uh, where how much does it cost over there? I'm guessing a hundred or two hundred. I'm not sure actually. I, I would I would say that's two hundred. Maybe for the 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 Huracan as well, right? Probably around there as well. Uh, Singapore easily five six hundred. Wow, that's two times. Yeah. Like that's three <laughs> times. Yeah, uh, it's crazy because of we have the COE in Singapore, which is basically the certificate of entitlement. Of um, I think entitlement. Um, I think we get COE. Basically, it's basically a certificate we have to buy to drive a car in Singapore. The government basically issues this to limit the number of cars to make sure that cars are not cheap. So that we do not run the same problems as Thailand and Indonesia and Philippines when there's congestion on the road. And that obviously 
you know, makes it less efficient, makes society less efficient. And that's what Singapore government is about. It's about efficiency, right? But keep being get off the plane and get on a taxi and reach your hotel within half an hour. So cars not cheap in the other day in Singapore. Um, it costs easily upwards from a basic Toyota will go from around a brand new Toyota will go from around hundred to hundred twenty grand. And oh. the continental car will start a BM will start from around hundred fifty for the basic one up to you know easy three hundred. And then your supercars will go from easily around a Porsche Boxster will start from around brand new, I'll say three hundred to like five hundred. And then your Ferraris go from easily from four hundred and above, and the Lambos as well. The wow. McLaren Singapore is the they, they, McLaren's not even Chinese. It's, it's what they call a price on request. <laughs> they don't even bother naming the price <laughs> oh, as well. Um, not even talking about the Bugatti even as well. So, mm. um, yes, maybe expensive to own a car in Singapore. So <laughs> if I ever own a Lamborghini, I have like half a million bucks to throw around. It's assuming that, you know, that, that money is after I, I, I deduct money from, from buying a house, you know, having a kid, paying for the kid's education, uh, having my business around as well, not need to support my parents, for example, big money my parents, and then money throw around as well, Lamborghini on top there as well. Yeah, I'll go pay the ping. I have a Hello Kitty by the way. But yes, you know, I love I love cars as well. Yeah, dude. Um, my um, my dad drives a Porsche Boxster. He never lets me drive it because I get too far. Uh, I get quite a lot of accidents. <laughs> I'm, I'm not major ones, but you know. In our day, it's not cheap to fix the car. And car insurance ain't cheap either as well. So he doesn't let me drive that one. That is his own personal, um, precious car that only he drives. Um, my sister, she, of course, she's a safer driver than I am. So I have to drive the other one, the other family car, because it's, um, it's, it's, it's um, the other one was Land Rover. So was he... Land Rover, well, it's a tank, right? I mean, you can drive anywhere and you can knock anything in your day as well. It's fine. It's meant to be knocked. So, I never get to drive the nice ones. Um, I'm not a really good driver. <laughs> <laughs> one day, right? One day. So, yeah, one day, one day. I mean, I, I mean, you can focus on one thing at a time. You focus on the cooking first, then I'll focus on the car later. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Actually, yeah. the thing that I noticed when I was in Singapore, obviously, a lot of great food there. Didn't have enough time. I was there for only less than a, a week, so not enough time. But for you, what's your favorite Singaporean food in general? And what's the best course for you in your restaurant? Um, generally, my favorite Singaporean food, I have a few. I mean, we wake up craving different things every day, right? In some sense. Um, but I'll say that, I'll just say that. I do crave my Hokkien Mee, the Singapore version. I do crave Bachong Mee. I do crave nasi lemak. Something you can get overseas basically as well. I started realizing what I crave and what I really like about Singapore food when I was living in London for three years because I couldn't get a lot of things there. Um, back then, in London only had Malaysian restaurants, didn't really have much Singaporean restaurants as well. So I started realizing what is it I like as well. So basically, like, let's say Hokkien mee, bachong mee, um, nasi lemak. Um, what else I do? Once about the occasional prata as well. I do like Singapore version of prata. Um, what else do you crave in Singapore? I actually don't really crave chili crab. I have no idea why. Although my sister did a chili crab ice cream, I do like chili crab, but it's not something I eat every month. Um, or saying that I want to eat chili crab, I do like, I like chicken rice. Of course, chicken rice. You know, I do like chicken rice. But sometimes, um, 
but quite interesting. Every time I asked me, "Where's the best chicken rice in Singapore?" recently as well. Um, I was like, "If you ask me where's the best chicken rice in Singapore, I'll tell you. You have to buy from three different stalls. One the chicken, the other one the rice, and the other one the chili sauce." I haven't wow. found chicken rice store in Singapore that does all three perfectly. Oh, okay. And maybe my grandma, but you know, but if I, to be honest, in true objectivity. My grandma's chicken was always a little bit overcooked for my liking. <laughs> but I partly found out because grandma's cooking for the whole family. Some people don't like pink chicken on the thigh. Some people are okay with it. She got fed up, she started cooking the whole chicken. <laughs> so they don't want to complain. <laughs> so she did out of convenience more so than lack of skill. Um, so yeah, I think for me, it's like, yeah, definitely, I mean, um, Bakute, Singapore version as well. Um, the peppery version instead of the Malaysian herbal one too. Um, these are things I really enjoy. Um, prawn noodle soup. I mean, the t- my top five, you know, if you ask me as well, it's going to be always Hokkien mee, bachor mee, nasi lemak, and chicken rice. These four things that I crave in Singapore um, where I go out to eat as well, yeah. Um, the only downside of cooking what I do is that I stop craving local food because I had to taste it every day in my own kitchen. <laughs> you know, so now, now what's on the menu? If if Bakute was on the menu in Singapore, I mean, I mean on my menu in library, sorry, I stopped eating Bakute for a while because tasting Bakute every day. Mm. And that's why I stopped eating chili crab again. I'm tasting chili crab every day in my own kitchen. So I think that's the reason why I stopped eating chili crab. <laughs> it's on the menu for seven years already. So yeah, I suspect that's why so as well. Um, so whatever's on my menu, I stopped eating it. <laughs> I, I have the, the salted egg custard bar on the menu now. I stopped ordering it in Chinese restaurant. I go to some already. I'm just near sick of it. steak and burgers outside of my free time and ramen, maybe. So, yeah, um, it really depends what's on my menu. So, that's the unfortunate part of running labyrinth. I stop eating outside food. Uh, outside, I stop craving local food outside sometimes. And then, what about something that maybe you like recently in your restaurant that, that gets you excited still? The newest dish always gets me excited, I always say. And then as time dies off, then I work on the next dish. That's, that's, that's why I have to keep innovating. You know, something... What gets me excited is not the dish, but an idea. A produce that gets me excited. And working on it gets me excited. Um, I don't innovate for sale innovating. That's why I have to change my menu. The good thing about Singapore is that there is no seasons when it comes to climate. The only season I have is festivities, so I always incorporate a bit of festivities into my into my menu. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is no seasons in Singapore, and that's part. So I'm not hard pressed to change my menu according to my seasons. But there's no skeleton, there is no fixed structure. I innovate when I'm inspired, and that's part as well. So always the newest dishes always um, excites me. But the two dishes on my menu right now, I got I got a, a very classical. A dish, the, the steakhouse dish as well in the pain treatment to my granddad as well on the hot plates straight shape on a hot plates um, sizzling hot plates shaped like an ox that my granddad's steakhouse used to do and then when you serve it in the dining room I convert the table into a mini steakhouse ambiance with checkered tablecloths and a candle a red coloured classic candle um, I recreated my granddad's menu from the 1980s and wow. a smash box that he used as well. We, we, we kept all the little you know, knickknacks as well from the day. My family kept it all as well. So we managed to uh, reproduce it and, and um, um, give it a, a bit of a facelift. And um, we changed. So basically, the steak dish 
it's not just about the steak, which is good steak. We use in this case, um, we use a good Japanese beef. Um, but really, it's more of the ambiance and how we recreate the entire atmosphere on the table from labyrinth to a steakhouse for that 15 minutes. Then we remove it and we bring it back to the labyrinth again as well. And that gets me excited because it's preserving my granddad's steakhouse legacy. It is sustainability, although not produce fund, not environmental fund, but it's a heritage sustainability and heritage fund and legacy. And my grandma's chicken rice on the menu too. These two dishes are always going to be some of them. I will always have one dish on my menu that is paying tribute to my grandma. So like rice dumpling season is coming. Um, so we'll be doing rice dumpling in June. My yeah. grandma's recipe. Um, now it's chicken rice. Um, you never know what's going to be next as well. So there will be one dish that will pay homage to my grandparents as well. And those dishes are the ones that are always close to my heart because they, well, they did inspire me from both a restaurant uh, and from a cooking perspective, to be where I am today. Yeah, I remember the uh, chicken rice for sure when I visited Labyrinth. The uh, yeah, you know, it's yeah. totally different from what you expected, but it's it has that same sort of style. But you understand that how much work and and dedication you have to actually make it what it was, right? Yeah, it's well, it's my grandma's work. They just need to copy it. <laughs> But I mean, then we twisted it, we tweaked it a bit, we changed how we cook the chicken as well. It's unique, but yet same. It's still quite comfort, comforting as well. It's quite homely. So it kind of messes people's mind like, yes, yeah, not really chicken rice uh, that I'm used to. But it does, it is chicken rice. Still, somehow. And um, it doesn't stray too much. And I think that's what grandma did best as well. She was really able to um, innovate in her own little ways and be creative. Yeah, that's the that's the sign of a great chef, right? Yeah, who's for me? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess uh, you know, last uh, couple questions. So you know, what are you working yep. on right now, and uh, what's a longer term plan for Labyrinth and yourself? Right now, I'm just with COVID um, still ongoing, with no traveling as well. You know, now it's just about working in the. I mean, it's about in the restaurant, changing my menu often, uh, consolidating my cooking philosophy. I think as a chef, not later, I, you know, um, I think it's about time for me to start cooking with a certain philosophy in mind that how we best want to shape what I want to tell. Because I mean, the thing over the years at Labyrinth for the last seven years have always been going undergoing mass, quite big changes when it comes to how we cook, <clears throat> how the menu flows. So for me, it would be nice to input a little bit of structure or skeleton to the menu so that my guys can also have a fixed structure to innovate around with and come out with new dish ideas as well. So to bring the team in more uh, than ever into the innovation process. Because Singaporeans, Labyrinth is not just Singaporean cuisine, you know. There is Singaporean story. And every Singaporean has a different story um, growing up and different kind of childhood memories and the flavors they are used to. And it could be, and this everyone's, there's no right or wrong, everyone's story can be is relatable by anyone else in Singapore. So obviously you want to bring the staff in to innovate a bit more as well. The team train them to, to start creating, uh, start being creative. Other than the rather than the entire creative process being driven out from me alone as well. Um, secondly, as well, we're trying to work on some expansion projects. Maybe next year, not this year when COVID is more or less um, hopefully resolved by then. Okay, or at least borders are open. Um, obviously, trying to work on a couple of new concepts as well, casual concepts, 
and um, maybe one more higher end concept. I always say it's one of my dreams to reopen my granddad's steakhouse because nine ninety four. So one of my dreams to revive it as well. But then again, steakhouse ain't cheap in Singapore to open. Um, but you know, maybe one day there's a, there's a, maybe, I won't say I'm actively I'm actively working on it yet. It's a dream, and I would definitely want to. Um, but right now I'm just really really busy with you know. Um, the restaurant itself, the operations, and I told you just now when I started the conversation, um, uh, pushing on new dishes, trying to still consolidate Labyrinth, the price point, as well as going forward, what kind of price point we're going to be at, um, as well as the menu structure and philosophy as well, and how do we want to um, shape our menu and make sure Labyrinth is stable going forward next time. So like yeah, the philosophy, the customers don't need to know the philosophy. We just need to know internally how we cook it, how we how we create. That's it as well. So it's not like in front of customers because to shove it down their throat. That is my philosophy. Right, that makes sense. That's like that's exactly you know to your point earlier where uh, you know obviously you opened a couple of uh, new concepts last year, pop ups and things like that. So obviously having that system in place would help in in a very competitive market in Singapore, right? Yeah, it is. I mean, to be honest, well, I mean. It's hard to rely on one restaurant um, for livelihood. I mean, it took us seven years to get to be a financially stable state. And uh, I say thankfully in COVID time with a lot of government assistance and local spend being quite strong um, and the economy in Singapore remaining quite resilient, I would say that uh, we're quite lucky as well to have ridden out um, the last one year in a fairly good shape. As well, alongside a lot of the other restaurants in Singapore as well, not just us, in general as well, not finite restaurants. And um, I think the other day for us is really for for me right now is we um, have to look to expand eventually. But Labyrinth will always be personal for me. I never see Labyrinth as dollar signs. It has never been and will never be. In the other day, I will never open new concept that are commercially driven without having leverage around because that's the point. The labyrinth is where my roots are at as a chef. There is no meaning being in the FMB industry if I don't have labyrinth as my platform and outlet to express myself. But I single-handedly built labyrinth from scratch. You know, a lot of chefs out there, you know, they, I mean, my team does as well. My team helps and I am deeply appreciative when I put it this way, that means seven years old, and the only person that's been a constant from the opening day to now, right now, unfortunately, is, well, unfortunately, really, <laughs> I wish that more people, um, is, well, just me. <laughs> but that has caused stuff along the way. I have some, my senior team has been with me for a while, my sous chef, people five over years, my dishwasher, very important person, my steward, very important person, more than anyone else in the kitchen, has been with me for five over years, or coming six years. I made sure they've been me for coming three years. My, pers- my personal assistant been me for three years as well. So the core team been me for a while. Um, but that is always going to be my own personal playground because right when it opened, these guys weren't at the start to see how we suffered and how I had to do so much things on my own right at the beginning. I literally did, had to paint some part of the restaurant myself. I hand-painted some part of the restaurant myself. I had to fix certain things myself. Um, I had to cook and wash and serve myself when we first opened. No one wanted to work for me. I was nobody in the industry. Um, the food back then wasn't as mature and as great as, I don't know, say great even, uh, I won't call myself great, uh, as um, 
um, confident by the entities right now. Um, and, you know, staff turnover was high at the beginning. You know, they, of course, couldn't really hire good quality staff because, well, I mean, the good ones all go to the famous restaurants, right? And um, so it's a, it's, it was a huge, massive journey to where we are today. And um, and I'm the only one seen it firsthand how we've suffered all the way from the start. And even to now, like, you know, with the recent operational challenges that we're facing in shortage of manpower, my sous chef asked me, you know, my maitre d' is very, very stressed out. He only got one full-timer working alongside him as well. We have full house every day, lunch and dinner. And um, he's worried. And, you know, my he, he told my sous chef he's very stressed. And my sous chef asked me, like, don't seem affected by it, chef. I'm like, well, I've been through worse. <laughs> it's not the worst yet. I said, have you ever fired your entire service team three hours before a full house dinner service? Wow. I said, I did that before in the earlier days, the first year of Labyrinth, because there was too much politics, too much, you know, backstabbing and too much, you know, disciplinary issues happening and I put an end to it. So, in the day, I always run my company with a very iron fist in the sense that no matter what operational problems we face when it comes to a manpower headcount, no one is bigger than the company, not even myself. So if there's disciplinary issues, there's like, you know, you steal from the company or if you, there's sexual harassment in the company, for example, even if I have no staff left after that, I'll still fire. How, and I think that's why Labyrinth has been around for a long time because we don't compromise when it comes to the integrity of how we run the company. If I condone certain behavior because of manpower constraints, then I would not be able to command a restaurant. Staff will be crawling all over me. So, I mean, before this really happened back then, so they three fired my entire front of house and a couple of guys in the kitchen right before a full house dinner service on a Saturday. Wow. And no service staff left. It's the immediate termination. I picked up a phone call. I called my business partners. I said, bring your brothers, bring your sisters, bring anything you can get your hands on as well. Come in and serve for me. Thank you very much. And then I stick servers at night. I called a friend of mine who's a sommelier. I said, hey, look, you know, you're a sommelier. I assume you went to culinary school. Come help me in the kitchen, man. I need a pair of hands. He's like, I have no cook for a long time. I'm like, doesn't matter. Come in. They give your ass in. And um, I'll tell you what to do. It's not that hard. So I've done it before. So it's the other day as well. Um, just having seen a lot of, and overcome a lot of challenges and obstacles um, has really made, uh, for me, has made Labyrinth a very personal and very attached, you know, very emotional journey and uh, entity for me as well. Because I grew it from nothing. <clears throat> a lot of chefs open their own restaurant after creating a reputation of someone else's restaurant. Or right. coming to the ranks in someone else's restaurant. I came from, I started Labyrinth with nothing. And I am where I am today because of Labyrinth as well. And my partners, of course, who supported me and my family. Um, but really because of Labyrinth, I grew, the restaurant grew with me. And for that, I think for future plans as well, Labyrinth will always be a key factor in how I do what I want to do. Expand, but I still have enough time for Labyrinth. Compromise the quality of the food served at Labyrinth, for example. Um, if I have to travel too often, what happens on Labyrinth? Is my team strong enough to function without me? Even if they're strong enough, can they innovate 
in my image, in my direction, my vision without me? And am I going to be happy with it? I mean, I'm not happy with how they create condition. Obviously, I'm not going to hand over the reins to them. So I always talk about, you know, handing over the next generation. Um, the younger wave of share coming up, always talk about how I want to hire and groom the next person to be to take over me. That's been last three years. And every time I want to do that, I find myself taking back control. Maybe it's just like, okay, I'm giving you like, this is my teddy bear. And then after I give the teddy bear away, and I've been having it for so long, I'm like, I want my teddy bear back. You kind of have it, you know, like this mind. So I think this is what's happening right now. I'm struggling somewhat to let go a little bit of leverage somewhat to find the right person to let it go to. And if I find the right person, can I really let it go? So, I mean, there's a bit of conundrum facing. So leverage will always be in future expansion plan, be a key part of my decision-making process as well. Yeah. And that's what I do. Yeah. That just sounds like it's a lot of, you know, all the blood and tears you actually poured into labyrinth and it becomes sort of the root of what you do and as, a, as your self-expression and also the food itself. Yeah, it is. I mean, right then I was doing 15-hour days at Labyrinth. Of course, my staff see me coming a bit later right now. They see me leaving a bit earlier as well. They like getting me like, oh, Chef has a good life. But obviously, these guys, they don't, they don't see the crazy hours. And the reason why I do cut down my hours right now is because my body cannot tolerate these hours if I continue like this. You know, Dave. So, but to manage my hours a bit better. Look, I mean, I opened Labyrinth when I was 28 years old, so very young, <laughs> and realized I'm not 36. <laughs> so, it's not exactly the same energy level. I'm still young, but the energy level is still not the same as 28 years 36. So, it's not, I, 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 for me, I realized that, you know, and that I have to adapt and myself, even in my hours and how, and my role in the business as we go along. And um, that's, that's something that, you know, I think always um, evolve. I think Labyrinth will continue evolving in certain ways as well while finding a more mature way of cooking and creating. And um, new concepts definitely come. This matter of right timing, right partners, and the right investments as well. Yeah, it sounds like you have your, uh, your goals set out. You know, you know what you're trying to get, you know, get to and you have a good plan of, of getting there. So that's great. Yeah, I think so. I, I like to think so. Um, be, ask me next year. I think I'll, I'll probably have a little bit of a clearer plan. <laughs> nice, nice. So uh, that's all the questions I have, uh, Chef Han. Thanks again for yeah, uh, you know sharing your time with me. And I obviously enjoyed my time when I was at Labyrinth. And, uh, hopefully... no, thank you. Thanks for coming. It's not bad then. So yeah. Yeah, hopefully. Thanks for all your support as well on social media, on Instagram especially. And you know, um, um, for helping promote us as well. I really appreciate that one as well. Yeah, yeah. no, it's always fun to talk to different chefs and learning how they think about different things. So, uh, again, hopefully yep. uh, things go back to normal soon and I can visit uh, Singapore again. Uh, I'm sure I'll visit you guys yes. and maybe we'll visit, go other places to eat as well. We'll, we'll see what happens. Yes, next time you're in Singapore, let's go. I'll, I'll, I'll take you out to my favorite places. Yeah, I, I would love that. Yeah, maybe yeah, the, the three yeah. Uh, yeah. Singaporean, yeah, totally. the, the chicken rice cool. places. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'll buy the chicken rice for three places and I'll assemble for you and average. Right on. I say it's mine. And I'll see it's mine. <laughs> <laughs> all okay. right. I need Russian lunch. All right. Thanks, Kevin. Appreciate sure. this. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Bye. Bye. Bye.